Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. As many of you know from my True Blue Crime podcast, I like to change up the type of true crimes I cover during my episodes. While the majority of episodes will still cover homicide cases, I try to mix in various other versions of true crime to include espionage, frauds, and in this case, airline piracy. But before we get into the infamous case of D.B. Cooper, let's cover the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. The D.B. Cooper hijacking is the most famous, unsolved, and successful hijacking in U.S. airline history. This case has intrigued investigators, media personnel, and armchair detectives slash internet sleuths for over 50 years. The brazen act of taking an aircraft hostage with a bomb, demanding a ransom, and then parachuting into the dark night was then copied by several other suspects to varying success, but those crimes were all solved, and the D.B. Cooper case remains unsolved to this day. We'll look at the crime itself and some of the theories about this hijacking and whether or not it was ultimately successful. The story of D.B. Cooper is really about a man who identified himself as Dan Cooper. The D.B. part was a mistake by a reporter, but that mistake wasn't corrected in time, and the case became known as the D.B. Cooper case. On November 24, 1971, a man going by the name Dan Cooper boarded a Northwest Orient Boeing 727 passenger airplane in Portland, Oregon. Flight number 305 was scheduled to travel from Portland to Seattle, Tacoma, Washington, and Dan Cooper had purchased a one-way ticket with cash. He was described as a white male in his mid-40s with dark hair and brown eyes. He was dressed in a business suit and raincoat and was carrying a briefcase and a brown paper bag. After boarding the plane before its 2.50 p.m. departure, he sat in a seat in the back row as the other 37 passengers and six crew members got settled. He ordered a bourbon and 7-Up cocktail from a waitress, and after receiving his drink, the plane took off, and he immediately handed a note to a flight attendant sitting on a jump seat in the back of the plane. Florence Schaffner received the note and figured it was a lonely businessman handing her his phone number, so she didn't even open the note before placing it in her purse. This caused Cooper to lean over and whisper to her, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. She opened the note, which in neat, all-capital, handwritten letters said, Miss... I have a bomb in my briefcase and you want to sit by me. After reading the note, Florence sat next to Cooper and asked him quietly if she could see the bomb. He opened his briefcase and she saw four red sticks that looked like dynamite, some wires, and a large battery. He closed the briefcase and dictated to her a list of demands to be brought to the pilot. She carried the list of demands to the front of the plane and gave it to the captain and advised the rest of the crew of the hijacker and the bomb. The pilot ordered the crew to stay near the cockpit and then radioed Northwest headquarters in Minnesota, advising them of the situation and the demands. 
Hooper had given the airline specific instructions to deliver him $200,000, the equivalent of $1.5 million today, in cash in a knapsack and four parachutes, two front chutes and two rear chutes. The request for extra parachutes was a well-thought-out addition to the plan because authorities couldn't risk that he would make a crew member or passenger jump with him, so they couldn't give him faulty parachutes that would result in the death of an innocent person. A different flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, was sent to sit with Cooper in case he had any additional demands. He told Tina that when they landed in Seattle, the airplane would be refueled, he would receive his cash, and then he would let the passengers go before getting his four parachutes. While the Seattle PD and the FBI were notified of the hijacking in progress, Northwest HQ authorized the payment of the ransom to ensure the safety of their passengers. The other passengers, unaware of the hijacking, were told there was a minor mechanical issue that needed to be addressed. The plane circled Seattle for two hours as the money was prepared, photographed, and the fuel on the parachutes were lined up. We're going to talk about this in a bit here, but this plan that the suspect had was a very, very well thought out plan. He had covered almost all of the contingencies that he needed to in regards to the parachutes. If he had only asked for a single parachute with a reserve, he realized that somebody could just give him a faulty both main and reserve parachute so that he, all he was doing was jumping to his death. But by asking for an extra parachute, if they did that, they ran the risk of an innocent person jumping to their death. So he had really thought out this process to make sure that he was going to get a working parachute. Because And, it, and it's not like they can give him one working main and reserve and then a non-working one and risk the chance that if he does make a hostage jump that they end up with the unworking one while D.B. Cooper ends up with the working one it just from a PR standpoint. The other thing I thought was interesting was that Northwest Airlines didn't hesitate to pay this ransom and you know you see all the TVs and movies and, and the U.S. government does not negotiate with terrorists or pay ransoms. Well this was not a ransom requested from the US government this was a ransom requested from the private airline company and the airline company has to look at it and say look if this guy blows up plane the least of their worries is the the loss of that plane and the cost associated with that they also have to worry about the, the lives of their passengers and crew and since those are from a human standpoint priceless but from a PR standpoint and a staffing standpoint, a morale standpoint, if, if you were to deny the ransom and then this plane blows up, as I said, it's just an absolute nightmare scenario. So really, Northwest doesn't have any choice except to pay the ransom at this point. The problem is they know that by paying the ransom, once word gets out, they're going to deal with copycats. And that is going to be an issue and we are going to talk about it. But basically, you have this guy with a well-planned out plan of attack. And I think even just picking the, the short flight, because when I first researched this, I thought, well, why wouldn't you pick a longer flight? You're banking on a lot of stuff happening a very short amount of time. It's a 35-minute flight. And so by the time you're up in the air, you get the note to the stewardess. She gets up to the pilot. The pilot radios this stuff in. There's a chance you could be almost touching down before information is really being relayed. Now that does explain why he was so prompt in making sure that the flight attendant read his note, but at the same time you would think that it would make more sense to do this on say like a two-hour flight where you 
for sure that there's no plans for the plane to touch down until all the stuff has been relayed. But at the same time, the longer that you sit on this plane, the less control you have over where these passengers are gonna get out. If the plane decides it has to make an emergency landing somewhere, it, it just makes more sense for this to, uh, to use the short flight like he did. So at this point in our story, this man identified as Dan Cooper via his airline ticket. And we're gonna talk about some of the changes in airline security that are a result of this after the fact. But remember, this is 1971, this is 30 years before 9-11, and there is almost nothing in terms of airline security at this point. So people could just walk onto a plane without having gone through almost any type of security check, which is obviously how he got onto a plane with a potential bomb and now as far as i could tell in the research too this was never confirmed to be a bomb whenever i hear about the red sticks lined up it makes me think of of chris farley and and tommy boy with road flares taped around his chest when he takes the people hostage over the the brake pad situation but it, it to me there's no verification that this was an actual bomb but of course they're not going to risk the chance that this isn't a live bomb and again, as I mentioned before, the, the PR nightmare that would be if this bomb were to go off and he would take this plane down along with all the passengers and crew. Now, Tina spent the two hours as the plane was circling Seattle studying Cooper, and when she was interviewed by investigators later, she said that Cooper seemed very familiar with the area, especially by air, and that he pointed out landmarks and mentioned the driving distance from Seattle to McCord Air Force Base was only 20 minutes. Cooper remained calm and treated the crew well considering his actions. And this is something when you get into these cases where there's so much meticulous planning on the part of the suspect that it's one of two things. Either two hours into this delay as they're lining up the cash and getting the fuel trucks ready and all that kind of stuff, he, he relaxes enough to start to slip up and say things just to fill blank air, like, the, the driving distance to this Air Force base, pointing out certain landmarks in the area. Again, he's either slipping up because he just wants to create conversation and he's giving away things that he probably shouldn't to this flight attendant, or this is all still part of his plan because if, if I'm going to commit this crime, I'm not going to do it in my backyard. It's going to make it way too easy for investigators to find me if I do it in an area I'm familiar with and that I'm going to be returning to after this crime. So for me, living in Minnesota, maybe I pick Phoenix, Arizona, something like that. And it's not going to take me long studying Phoenix, Arizona to learn a couple minor things, how, how far it is to drive from one place to another, major landmarks that should be easy to find from the air. And pretty quickly I could convince somebody that I had intimate knowledge of the area without really having intimate knowledge. It's the classic red herring. And so to this day, this is why this case is obviously unsolved but everything you look at you can look at and say okay well that means that this suspect was likely from the area or you can look at it and say this guy was meticulous with his planning to the point that he is purposely throwing investigators off by making conversation with the flight attendant to make it look like he was native or had spent a bunch of time in that area and in reality he could be from 
another part of the country, Canada, anywhere other than that part of the country, it's going to make them that much harder to find. And during their conversation, Tina mentioned living in Minnesota at the time, and Cooper commented that Minnesota was nice country. She tried to get some information out of him about why he was doing what he was doing and where he was from. He told her he was doing this because he had a grudge, but not against the airline. Cooper got upset when she started trying to get personal information out of him and changed the subject. And this again, Minnesota's nice country. You can kind of say that about anywhere in the United States. It's... It wasn't as if he gave, as far as we can tell, or as far as it was reported, specific landmarks in Minnesota that only people who had visited the state or lived in the state would know. Because somebody could say, hey, they're from northern Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I could say, man, that's a nice country up there. And you would not know whether or not I had been there, whether, again, I'm just using speech that most people would about an area that they maybe drove through once or had visited once. So again, everything that he's saying, all of these little clues that he's giving aren't super helpful to investigators because you either have to believe that he's got some knowledge of the area or you got to believe that he's purposely saying things to throw investigators off. And either way, it's likely not going to help you find your suspect. And when Tina starts asking Cooper about where he lives he's getting very angry he can tell she's trying to get information out of him so he's more than happy to discuss other things he's purposely trying to hide and to me that makes me believe that he had prearranged this knowledge about the seattle area with her in order to throw investigators off but when she starts to try to get further past that red herring level of information he's getting upset worried that he's going to slip up and likely say something where they could actually figure out where he is from and then passengers started to get a little upset as the plane circled their 35 minute flight had turned into over a two hour delay and they began to question the crew including tina as she was sitting next to cooper about the delay cooper was said to at first be amused by the passenger's curiosity, but eventually took a more stern tone with the passenger who wouldn't drop the issue. So again, at first he's probably feeling a little smug because he knows that the delay is caused by him and it's all part of his plan. And so he's probably, again, the level of control that he has at this point over the other passengers and the plane and the crew and everybody, it's probably amusing him. But pretty quickly that amusement's going to turn into annoyance as he's got an agenda and the more he's questioned about what's going on, the more people try to dig up what's going on and and potentially ruin his plan, or at least make it more difficult, he's going to get a little more upset. And when this bag of cash was ready, it weighed in at 19 pounds. Authorities had taken microfilm of all 10,000 of the $20 bills that would be given to Cooper which was a way for them to track them if someone started spending them or was found to be in possession of them. They had also secured parachutes and advised the pilot they should land around 5.24 p.m. So again, Cooper requested these to be $20 bills. Obviously, $10 or $5 bills is going to make this 19-pound bag even heavier, but he doesn't want $50 bills or $100 bills. They're just easier to track. There would have been less of them what people would have been more on a lookout for somebody and with these bills $20 bills are still pretty common in circulation so you can spend them rather easily without somebody questioning or even really 
looking too closely at them. So he's got this point, but it's, it's got to be in the middle. He, he could have gone with all $10 bills, but then the bag's going to weigh 38 pounds. And the more weight you're going to jump out of an airplane with, the more something can go wrong. So 19 pounds is still a pretty significant weight to be adding to jumping out of an airplane. But uh, as we're going to see, this is all part, part of his plan. And the plane touched down at 5.46 p.m. and Cooper gave further demands to include only one person deliver the cash and parachutes as they approached a specific location on the plane. This prevented authorities from sending in a form of tactical team or to try and create a diversion. So he doesn't want six, seven cars filled with people approaching this plane. He could very quickly be overwhelmed by people and, and feel the need to detonate this bomb or feel like he's he's trapped or something like that so he wants to continue to control the situation he does that by having them send just one person out he can keep an eye on one person and he can send one flight attendant out to get the bag of cash one flight attendant out to get the parachutes and so he has much more control over the situation. So again, he has every part of this plan thought out in advance. All of the different contingencies, all the things that can go wrong, he's finding ways to work around them by his specific demands, whether it be the extra parachutes, whether it be demanding only one person. Uh, so he's clearly a, a well-organized and, and tactically sound person. So after the cash gets delivered, Tina went to re retrieve the parachutes, and when she was given the parachutes, they had been packed by like a local, I think it was a skydiving company, because it's not as if the police or the FBI just have extra parachutes sitting around. So these parachutes were given to the FBI, which were then given to the, the flight attendant, and they had been careful to write instructions on how to use these parachutes. I guess they came, there was written instructions that were included and again this was to make sure that an innocent hostage wasn't killed if cooper didn't know how to properly prep or operate the parachutes because again unlike in movies or, or tv it's not as simple as just putting a backpack on and jumping out of an airplane there's there's different things that need to be done to properly put on these parachutes and how they operate because some parachutes operate via person wearing the parachute pulling the cord other ones are automatically deployed and so again they're going to include instructions but cooper is going to tell tina he didn't need instructions and then the other flight attendants actually asked if they could leave the plane and cooper agreed to let them off the plane he became agitated when he realized the material for the bag of money was not what he requested, so he cut the canopy out of one of the parachute bags and transferred the money to a bag with more rugged material. I think they'd given it to him in some type of a cloth bag, and he knows that he's going to be jumping out of this plane. He knows there's a potential for this bag to rip apart just by the force when he leaves the plane, so that's why he specifically wanted, I believe, some type of a canvas knapsack. He wanted the cash in a really rugged, well-stitched material, and he gets this kind of loose cloth material bag. And that, again, might have been part of a plan by the FBI to th throw a little wrench into his plan. And so he fixes this because now that he has the parachutes, he, he's not planning on pushing a crew member or pilot out of the plane. He believes he has four working parachutes. 
and he doesn't need four, so he sacrifices one of these bags, because they're made obviously very sturdy, and he transfers the money into this bag. The refueling process ran into issues, which was also said to upset Cooper, who wanted to get back in the air. He made out a new list of demands, which directed the pilots to fly no higher than 10,000 feet, maintain a low airspeed of 115 miles per hour, and to keep the cabin unpressurized. He directed the pilots to fly to Mexico City, and they advised him the plane couldn't hold enough fuel, so they would need to refuel in Reno, Nevada. With the plane refueled and the demands received, the plane took off at 7.40 p.m. with the pilot, co-pilot, a flight engineer, Tina, the flight attendant, and then Cooper on the plane. Unbeknownst to Cooper, authorities had authorized three Air National Guard planes, which were two fighter jets and a trainer, to follow the hijacked plane. Due to the extremely low airspeed of the Boeing, the fighter plane struggled to stay behind the plane and out of sight. And so all planes have a certain airspeed they have to maintain in order to A, keep control of the plane, but B, to not stall and fall out of the sky. And these fighter jets that were assigned to follow the hijacked airplane, they're they function at a much higher speed than obviously normal commercial jets anyway, but at this 115 miles per hour, this slow-moving commercial jet plane is going to be struggling to, to stay in the air. So these, it said that these other two jet fighters, they basically had to do these S maneuvers, basically constantly banking around to maintain enough speed to stay in the air, but to not catch up to this hijacked plane to the point that the suspect's going to see them back there. And after only four minutes in the air, Cooper ordered Tina to lower the rear staircase on the plane. And, and we haven't talked about it, but this set Boeing 727, it's the only plane in the world designed with this built-in staircase that came out of the rear of the plane. And this allowed passengers to get on and off the plane without requiring you to have one of those roll-up staircases or a jetway. So basically the plane had its own loading and unloading staircase and this came out of the, the, the rear belly of the airplane. And Tina was hesitant to open this staircase as she didn't have a parachute and was afraid she would be sucked out of the plane and fall to her death. So Cooper finally agreed to let Tina go up to the cockpit area so she would be far away and he would open the stairs himself. And once Tina was in the cockpit area, basically the cockpit doors at this time were just a solid door. So she goes into the cockpit with the pilot, co-pilot, and flight engineer and she shuts the door because again she's worried as soon as he opens the staircase in midair that everything that's loose and or not bolted down or whatever is going to be sucked out of the back of the airplane and cooper has a parachute at this point so if he gets sucked out of the airplane well he's where he wants to be anyway i guess uh out of the airplane with a parachute on but if she gets sucked out obviously she's falling to her death well and because the cockpit door was solid they're not going to be able to look back through this cockpit door and see anything that Cooper's doing or exactly when he's going to leave this plane. And once Tina was in the cockpit area with the door closed, a warning light in the cockpit came on at 8 p.m. that the rear stairwell was open. The crew asked Cooper over the intercom if he needed assistance, and Cooper replied no, and that was the last anyone heard from the suspect. At 8.13, the plane experienced a change in weight, which required pilot adjustment, and it is believed this is the timestamp for when Cooper exited the plane. The pilot noted the location of the plane at this time to be near some suburbs in the northern section of Portland. 
The crew, having been advised to not open the cockpit curtain, flew to Reno. An unapproached advised Cooper to close the staircase before landing, but got no reply. Pilot landed the plane with the staircase down, and the plane was surrounded by law enforcement, and after 30 minutes safety standoff, it was determined Cooper was no longer on the plane. So this 813 timestamp when they believe Cooper jumped off the plane, the FBI did some reenactments. I think they had like a 200-pound dummy or a sled or something like that that they lowered the staircase in midair and chucked it out, and and the change in weight uh, at the back of the plane when this weight is on the staircase and leaves the staircase simulated the change in control that the pilots felt at 8.13. So they're pretty confident that that is the time that he jumped and that he was waiting until they cleared this Seattle-Tacoma area, like the more urban area, before he made the jump. So that's why there's a 13-minute delay between the time the stairs opened and they experience this change in control when they believe that he jumped because the last thing he wants to do is obviously parachute right into a city that knows that this plane has been hijacked and if if they're able to radio hey we just experienced a guy jumping out we're like five minutes out from the airport he should be landing somewhere around the airport it's going to be harder for cooper to get away he wants to land further away from the city so 13 minutes at 115 miles per hour he's going to be on the outskirts of these suburbs when he makes the jump an immediate investigation to identify the suspect began and the airplane was treated like a crime scene and 66 fingerprints were lifted from the plane cooper had left behind his clip-on tie and tie clip and the remaining parachutes were also processed the most obvious place to look for suspects was to check police databases and a low-level criminal named db cooper was found in the portland area Police checked on him and ruled him out as a suspect, but a reporter was rushing to meet his deadline for the story, and when he wrote his story, he identified the hijacker as D.B. Cooper, and other media outlets ran with it, and the name stuck. So one of the things about this case, as I mentioned in the very beginning, is the D.B. part of D.B. Cooper was completely a mistake. Everybody refers to it as the D.B. Cooper case, but in reality, the suspect identified himself as Dan Cooper, and we'll talk about why people believe he did that later but it's just adds a little more intrigue that most people don't understand that the the suspect in this case has nothing to do with this db cooper it was a a mistake by the media and while at first glance the possible landing area should be easy to determine there were so many different factors in play that the search zone was large and non-specific factors such as airspeed rough direction of travel the wind the unknown time of freefall, etc., all made it impossible to pin down a small landing area. So at first, that's what I thought too is, okay, if the pilots know where they were when he jumped out of the plane, shouldn't it be easy to determine where somebody jumping from this plane would land? But when you factor in the, the pilot doesn't know the exact speed of the airplane, it's going so slow that to, to factor in those 13 minutes between when the rear staircase first dropped to when they think that he jumped then somebody falling in free fall and directing their body can go off course quite a distance and then when you deploy the parachute you can drift even further depending on the winds and it's said that this parachute the ones that they gave him didn't have much in the form of 
manual control, so the suspect would have been at the mercy of the wind, pushing him in whichever direction. And we're going to talk about a couple different search zones here, too, that they have some of the world's best experts trying to figure out where he would have fallen based on different factors. And ultimately, they settle on three different potential drop zones. And to this day, very little has been found in the way of evidence. J. Edgar Hoover was able to convince the military to do a flyover of the flight path using the top-secret SR-71 Blackbird and its Cold War spy aerial photography capabilities to see if any items related to the hijacking could be seen, but the efforts failed to produce any evidence. So this SR-71 Blackbird, it was the premier secret spy plane at the time in the early 70s. This was a high-altitude, high-speed spy plane that could fly high enough above Soviet airspace to stay out of their radar and their surface-to-air missile range, and also had this state-of-the-art aerial photography capability to take photos of Soviet military installations and nuclear uh, weapon sites. So this was definitely going to be an asset that could have come in handy. The, the ability for the photography, it doesn't, obviously for this case, didn't have to fly at, at real high altitudes, but the camera capabilities of this plane were so far ahead of the time that they thought maybe this would allow them to find, in the case of potentially a body or items of evidence left behind after D.B. Cooper landed. But again, despite this being a valiant effort, it, it failed to produce any evidence. The possible landing area was a mostly forested area just south of Mount St. Helens, and the area was rough and filled with dense vegetation along with rivers and lakes. The area was searched on foot and using vehicles to include air, ground, and water. Houses, cabins, and buildings in the area were searched. The only remains found were that of a missing and abducted teenager named Barbara Ann Derry, who had been reported missing weeks prior. After exhaustive ground searches using law enforcement and military assets, a new search area was proposed with authorities stating their first area was based on miscalculations. The new search area centered around the town of La Center, Washington. Roughly 50 years later, the FBI reported that a burglary on the night of the jump was reported in a nearby town of Hessen. Burglar only took survival items and preserved food, and it was unknown if it was related to the D.B. Cooper case. So again, they've got this original search area. It's pretty remote. It's densely forested. There's houses, cabins, but a lot of lakes and rivers. And I think the main lake in this area was something like 200 feet deep. So I think they even sent uh, some type of a submersible into the lake because without the capability for Cooper to really control his descent with his parachute, it didn't have great manual control. And he's jumping into the dark night and in the rain a lot of people surmise that he could have landed in one of these bodies of water and depending on his capabilities with the lack of light and all that kind of stuff it's very possible that he could have drowned in a lake and if he drowns and, and sinks to the bottom of a 200 foot lake could explain why there was no evidence left behind but then they recalculated this and said okay well maybe it was in this area over here and hey by the way the night of the jump, there was this burglary, and the guy only took survival items and preserved food like beef jerky. So if you're going to be somebody who just committed 
a crime that the entire nation is aware of, going off into the woods to survive for a week or two isn't a terrible idea, but since you just jumped from an airplane with limited supplies, a burglary to gain more supplies would be a viable option for you. But again, this wasn't reported until 50 years later, and they didn't really say whether or not they had any direct evidence this was part of the, the Cooper investigation. And with no evidence of their suspect after his jump, the FBI released the microfilm photos of the $20 bills given to Cooper to banks, casinos, and other businesses that dealt in high volumes of cash. The FBI hoped Cooper would try and wash his money, and if multiple bills showed up in any location, they knew that Cooper had to be operating nearby. So again, they had taken this microfilm photos of all 10,000 of these $20 bills, and the hope was if you get three, four, or five of these bills showing up in either in a bank or in a casino somewhere, then you have to assume that this money that was given to Cooper is being spent. And if the money's being spent, it's likely by Cooper. And A, you know that he's survived his jump, and B, you know at least roughly an area that he might be operating in. And then a third drop zone calculation was offered up after the pilot admitted he had to fly manually due to Cooper's speed request and he may have drifted off course to the east more than he originally thought. This combined with wind readings from a nearby aircraft led the FBI to rezone the landing area in a new spot near the Washogal River. This area was heavily damaged and covered in ash during the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. So again, we've now moved on to a third potential search area. So it's not as if they have this large search area and they're just focusing on different parts of the area. They've moved this entire search area three times now around the map around the area of Mount St. Helens. So those first two searches that were extensive using ground, air, and water vehicles, they may have not even been searching in an area in which he actually landed. I don't know that they had a date stamp to when they did this third drop zone calculation, but it just made mention that when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980s, this was roughly nine years into the investigation, it damaged this search area extensively. So if there was evidence, whether it be a parachute, even potentially a body, whatever it might be, locating it because of the damage done when Mount St. Helens erupted was going to be extremely difficult. Officially, the FBI suspended their active investigation into the D.B. Cooper case in 2016. While they would still accept physical evidence related to the case, especially the ransom money or the parachutes and any human remains, they are not actively looking into the case. So basically, they've left the door open for anybody to walk in with any information about the case, but they don't have agents on the ground actively following up on potential suspects or looking into old leads or anything like that anymore. It's, they're literally going to have to have somebody walk in with a knapsack of the remaining money or finding the body of D.B. Cooper before they're really going to put any more time into this investigation. As mentioned before, the FBI does have some evidence in the case. The necktie and clip left behind by Cooper was analyzed by both the FBI and a team of private scientists. The FBI found some DNA on the tie, and the scientists found evidence of rare titanium metals that may indicate that Cooper worked in airplane manufacturing before the hijacking. And they made a really big deal of this on a documentary that I watched about this case. These metals that they found, they're, they're microscopic elements on the tie, but they believe the only way that somebody could have gotten 
this these small metal items on the tie was if they wore it while they were inside of a a place that manufactured airplane because the breakdown of the metals these were some really rare metals that were only used in certain specific manufacturing especially of airlines and he remember he mentioned on the plane that he had a grudge and it wasn't necessarily against northwest orient airlines but it could have been against boeing it could have been against the airlines and that was just a red herring it could have been against a company who made parts for Boeing. Uh, this all could have been an attempt to try to destroy Boeing's reputation or Northwest reputation or whatever it might be. But they basically said that whoever had worn this tie when these metals had, had come in contact with it likely indicated they had a background in either airplane manufacturing or working for the airlines to some capacity. A hair sample taken from Cooper's seat was lost by the FBI at some point in the last 50 years, and an arm hair was purposely destroyed in the years after the crime because the FBI felt it wasn't useful. And that's the unfortunate thing, is we are talking about a crime that occurred in the early 1970s, and yes, it's a big case, but I don't think they likely thought that it would still be looked at in the same light 50 years later that it is being looked at right now so unfortunately because dna wasn't a thing at the time and and because evidence i don't think back then had the same value fingerprints definitely did but things like hairs and as we're going to find out cigarette butts weren't treated with the same value that they are now because there were cigarette butts believed to belong to cigarettes smoked by D.B. Cooper. Now, I remember this is a time when you could smoke on airplanes. I know I've mentioned it on my other podcast, but the show Mind Hunters on Netflix, it talks about the birth of the behavioral analysis unit with the FBI. Great series. I actually really enjoyed it, but this is the 1970s and when they're flying to different prisons to interview these serial killers they're smoking on the airplanes and i it just to me it just boggles my mind i mean obviously i i'm old enough to remember going to restaurants and asking to be sat in the non-smoking section and yes you would literally could be sat next to a table where people are actively smoking as you know you're eating food but i i never remember a time at least when people could smoke on an airplane and it always boggled my mind when they would have no smoking signs in the in the airplane itself that you had to tell people when they could or couldn't smoke but anyway db cooper smoked on the airplane so they had these cigarette butts which are great retainers of dna after somebody smokes unfortunately the fbi only checked for fingerprints on them but then sometime in the last 50 years before anybody thought to try these things for DNA, they were lost, probably tossed out. In 1980, an 8-year-old boy playing on the riverbanks of the Columbia River discovered three stacks of $20 bills in the sand along the river. Extensive scientific analysis was done of the flow of the river, as well as the condition of the bills, and it was determined the bills were deposited in the sand by natural river flow, but had to have been put in the water months after the hijacking due to microscopic growth on the bills that could have only began in the spring. And so the, obviously this was a huge find. It was the first time anybody had located any 
and, and the only time anybody had located ransom money that was linked to the D.B. Cooper case. And the three stacks were, it was two stacks, two 100 bill stacks of $20 bills and one 90 stack of $20 bills. So that added an extra level of curiosity to it because had it just been the three even stacks, $120 bills, people could have surmised maybe they fell out of this knapsack, this makeshift knapsack while he was falling from the sky. Maybe he hit the ground. Eventually, somehow, these stacks of bills made it into the water on their own and floated down. But because the one stack was missing 10 bills, that indicated to some people that these bills would have been removed manually from this stack by likely D.B. Cooper, which would indicate that he was alive. Then it was also had something to do with the microscopic growths on the bills, that because this crime occurred in November. In this part of the country, these, these certain microscopic growth couldn't occur until the spring. So these bills had to have been exposed during the spring. So again, it led people to question if these bills somehow ended up in the river on their own. Let's just say D.B. Cooper didn't survive his jump. It's less likely that these bills would have somehow on their own magically ended up in the river after sitting somewhere else for the entire winter and again between that and the missing 10 bills people believe somehow that these this was proof that the bills had some manipulation to them months after the jump which would indicate more than likely that dv cooper survived the jump and after the money was tested the bills were divided up between the boy who found them the airline insurance, and some were kept by the FBI for evidence. In total, three stacks containing 290 bills at a value of $5,800 were recovered, and no other bill with a D.B. Cooper serial number has ever been found. The FBI spent an extensive amount of time developing a profile of Cooper. The full profile is extremely lengthy, but they believe he was a military-trained parachutist who was either desperate for money or wanted to prove that he could pull off the daring crime. The name Dan Cooper was likely taken from a Belgian comic book that was written in French and distributed in Europe and Canada. The comic book centers on Dan Cooper, a test pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force, a man who parachutes out of planes at times. The comic book was never translated into English or sold in the U.S., so it's likely Cooper traveled in French Canada or Western Europe during his military service. Cooper's planning of the entire crime to include of thinking of various contingencies, led investigators to believe he was well-educated and well-trained during his time in or after his military service. The plane used was also said to be well-researched as it was the only commercial airliner at the time that allowed the easy exit via parachute due to its engine configuration and the rear staircase. However, the use of the rear staircase in flight was not well-known among civilians and indicates Cooper had inside knowledge of the plane's operation either by working for Boeing or from his time in the military. And this is because the CIA used Boeing 727s to drop soldiers and supplies into Vietnam, the same way Cooper used it to jump during the hijacking. So obviously during the Vietnam War, there was a lot of covert actions being taken, and you didn't always want to fly a military transport plane over certain parts of the region that the U.S. wasn't supposed to be in. 
So the CIA could use these Boeing 727s, disguise them as commercial airliners, and then they could use this rear staircase to either have people parachute, just like D.B. Cooper did, or they could push loads of weapons or supplies if they're supplying freedom fighters or some of their soldiers behind enemy lines were not supposed to be. But basically it was a commercial airliner that had the capabilities to do these drops because of this rear staircase. So some people believe that D.B. Cooper might have had some time either working with or for the CIA in Vietnam using these 727s. And this was further cemented by the fact that during the low speed flight, Cooper had ordered the pilot to set the wing flaps at 15 degrees. This allowed for the lowest speed possible with the scent control and less chance of a stall. And this knowledge of airplane operation led the FBI to believe Cooper had intimate flight knowledge or had done this maneuver before. And so again, this was something you have to have the plane traveling at a very low speed when you make this jump because the higher the speed the plane is going, the more force is going to be exerted on your body and anything attached to your body as you jump out of the plane. So jumping out of a plane that's traveling at 400, 500 miles per hour, unless it's like in an ejection seat in a jet fighter where you're strapped in and, and everything, it's it's a potential death wish. So in order for the CIA to do what they did in Vietnam, they had to learn how to operate these planes at extremely low speeds and part of that process was setting these wing flaps to 15 degrees which again was a direct order that Cooper gave the pilots it's not something the pilots figured out on their own so this obviously led the FBI to believe that Cooper had either seen this done before he had done it before somehow he had knowledge that this is the way to do this this low speed low altitude flight and still give the pilots the best control of the plane and allow him to make the jump with the best chance for survival. And at first, many FBI officials were convinced that Cooper did not survive his jump. And this was part of the first months of the investigation, and this is when they were doing all those searches. They were pretty confident they were going to find a body. And the weather and darkness that he jumped into would have been difficult to survive. He was also wearing loafers and not jump boots, so his unsupported ankles could have broken from the force of the landing and he was jumping into a sub-zero windshield that could have made him hypothermic before he even made it to the ground. So from a weather condition standpoint, the jump was just about as bad as it could be. Even at only 10,000 feet instead of you know your, your typical 30,000, 40,000 foot operating area for commercial flights, even at the 10,000, he's still gonna be jumping into extremely cold air temperatures jumping into a 115 mile an hour wind plus whatever natural wind is is occurring at that 10,000 foot level. Uh, these jump boots instead of loafers, there's a reason that jump boots were invented and this is because when you land there is a lot of force on initial impact put onto your ankles which are not the strongest joints in your body. So if you're jumping with your full body weight and the weight of the parachute and in this case an additional 19 pounds from the cash which doesn't sound like a lot but 19 pounds is still extra weight that that is being put onto the impact when you land doing that in a pair of business loafers versus a pair of jump boots jump boots specifically have 
high leather that comes up above the ankle and then when tied tight it basically creates this brace for when you land your ankles aren't absorbing all of the shock it's your your entire body through those these jump boots all the way up through your body so you have less chance of breaking an ankle or a leg when you land because wearing loafers landing and breaking an ankle or a leg in the middle of nowhere on a cold november night is is one way to potentially not come out of this thing alive but then after cooper's jump there were five other copycat crimes that actually had men jumping from airplanes mid-flight so after word got out there was within i think a year or two after db cooper's thing there were five times people actually jumped out of commercial airlines just like db cooper as part of ransoms part of hijackings there were several other cases where the the guy in one case he got the door open but then decided he didn't want to jump so i know there was more copycat crimes but i, I think i read somewhere there's five that were successful where they gained parachutes and made the jumps and in all of those cases the men survived their jumps i think it's that in one case the guy was going about twice the speed that db cooper was the plane was doing like 250 miles per hour and he still managed to survive his jump with nothing but a few scrapes and, and bruises from his landing so the fbi quickly went from there's no way anybody could survive this to you know guys that went five for five with their jumps in similar or worse conditions and suddenly they realized the survivability of the jump was a lot higher than they originally thought but questions still remain about why none of the money other than that that was found in the riverbank has ever been recovered is unless you believe that he did this just to prove that he could do this and never wanted to spend the money so that it prevented him from getting caught and money was never really the motivating factor for this entire crime it does seem odd that if somebody went through this much effort this much face this much danger potentially die to get a life-changing amount of money as i said yes it's only two hundred thousand then but that's 1.5 million dollars today you can live pretty comfortably on that for quite a while especially if you're already in your mid-40s that's that's pretty much your retirement there if you spend it correctly but none of it that we know of was ever actually spent so that leaves people wondering what happened to this ransom money and there have been several suspects that have been looked at over the years by the fbi and citizen sleuths and while many have shown promise due to their backgrounds or committing similar crimes no one has ever been charged with a crime directly related to the db cooper hijacking and for quite a while there eyewitnesses such as tina the flight attendant i mean she sat next to this guy for two hours so it's not like this guy wore a ski mask or she saw him for five seconds any of the suspects that the fbi started to look at closely were likely run by tina to say hey is this the guy you sat next to for two hours and she would pretty quickly be able to say no that's not the guy and there were in one of the documentaries a couple of the guys on the list were supposedly well known for using makeup and wigs to disguise their looks and their ages and it's possible that even though he was described as being in his mid-40s he could have been as early as his mid-20s and he just wore some makeup to make himself look older and again i would think if it was a simple thing like a bank robbery where the eyewitnesses maybe have a minute or two where they're seeing the suspect and even then it's not that close and it's not that intimate 
of of an encounter but this is two hours sitting next to somebody on an airplane and you know they're committing a crime tina was studying him this was not you sat next to a guy for two hours in an airplane and then you find out a year later that the guy was a serial killer and somebody asked you to describe him she knew he was a criminal from the second she started sitting next to him so she spent those two hours studying him and studying his face i would think that she'd be able to recognize or over time see things that would indicate it was a wig or he was wearing makeup or the things about his face didn't appear right so i think she did get a very good look at the actual db cooper and i think that the suspects that were all presented to her did not in her mind match who she sat next to for two hours on the plane and as a result of the db cooper hijacking and the copycat crimes several changes to airline security were implemented this included the introduction of federal air marshals security checkpoints at major airports and modifications to the existing boeing 727s that no longer allowed the rear stairwell to be open during flight basically everybody that did the copycat did it on these Boeing 727s because of this rear staircase that could be opened during flight. This is why now all these all the airplanes have the warnings on the doors that you know if you open this there's a fine and all that kind of stuff because airplanes are not designed now for passengers to be able to get off of them especially mid-flight but in any way without compromising the airplane or needing to have assistance in some way which is why that's why if you've ever had to get off a plane on the tarmac they have to push up one of those stairs to the plane otherwise they have to use one of those jetways at the concourse for you to be able to get off the plane there's there's no real easy way to parachute from a commercial airliner anymore and that's because of the db cooper crimes and even these existing 727s of course they didn't want to take an entire model of airplane out of service just because of these copycat crimes so they actually had what was called it was a cooper vane installed and it was a mechanical device on the outside of the plane that prevented this stairway from being opened during flight it's something that ground crews had to access and open in order for this staircase to come down so Obviously, if you're in the plane doing the hijacking, you can no longer use the rear staircase as an exit if it's not a capability the plane has anymore. And then, in a strange twist of fate, the man who packed the four parachutes given to D.B. Cooper was killed during a burglary at his home in 2013. And while no link between his involvement in the D.B. Cooper case and his murder have been established, there are definitely conspiracy theorists out there who think otherwise. And again, there's one person in the entire country who packed these four parachutes for D.B. Cooper, and granted it was 40 years later, over 40 years later, that he was killed. It's just not that many people are homicide victims in America, so your, your chance of being killed in a homicide is extremely low. So the chance the one person who packed the parachutes for D.B. Cooper is killed in a homicide is extremely low, so that leads some people to believe there was some type of a conspiracy in regards to the guy who packed the parachutes and D.B. Cooper. There's all kinds of stuff out there on the internet about it, but basically the FBI's come out and said they don't believe there's a link. Just happened to be a guy who tried to interrupt a burglar in his home and was, was killed in the process. 
The name D.B. Cooper lives on in American history as it's the only unsolved case of airline piracy. To some, the man who pulled off the daring crime without hurting anyone is a folk hero, and a convention in his honor is held every year. There have been many documentaries, TV shows, books, magazine articles, and movies made that either focus on or reference his crime. And the suspect was supposed to be in his mid-40s in 1971, which means he could be approaching 100 years old if he is still alive. Many feel he may have died that night or taken his secret to the grave already, but there are many who hope that one day in the near future we will all find out who D.B. Cooper slash Dan Cooper really was. But that is the story of D.B. Cooper. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.